Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. <laughs> My next guest on West Coast Live uh, is, a, uh, is a very funny writer, yet he also tackles remarkably, astonishingly uh, worldwide and serious subjects in the, in the course of these hilarious books. Uh, he was uh, the, the writer of The Russian Debutante's Handbook, novel that was a national uh, bestseller, very funny, and the new Absurdistan, which is set in the year 2001, and I think we'll let him explain the premise of the, of the book, but suffice to say, Absurdistan is a place where the United States has some influence, largely because it's very interested in oil, and the U.S. Embassy is in part in the shadow of the of the Mobile Exxon Shell building that's been put up and so on and so forth. But there's a man who wants to come to America, he wants to get a visa, it's, but he ends up being, well, Gary Steingart. Please welcome Gary Steingart to West Coast Live. Thank you very much. Now you should know also about Gary that he was born in Leningrad in 1972, came to the United States when he was seven, and so I assume English is your second language, or perhaps your third or fourth? I'm still trying to learn English. No, I'm kidding. It's, uh, <laughs> I've known it for a while, yeah. You've known it for a while. And then, uh, but along the way, you, you also uh, went to college in, in Oberlin, and, and I don't know if there's a connection between that and the fact that, uh, that your, your uh, character has gone to accidental college, not occidental, but accidental college. <laughs> Well, actually, the character uh, in the book Absurdistan is this 325-pound Russian man who destroys a very small country inadvertently. And the idea for this guy came from uh, the guy that lives next to me in uh, Oberlin. And unlike most of us Russians who I thought were these meek little immigrants trying to survive, he was larger than life. And he, uh, he did all these things. He, was, he started a striptease class. Uh, he uh, had raised these psychedelic frogs he would lick all the time. So... <laughs> I thought this would be the perfect man for, uh, for Absurdistan. And what, what did that give you a sense about the, uh, the, the idea of American scholarship? Well, uh, it was a very Marxist college, uh, and my final thesis was called Back in the USSR. And uh, the Marxist professors loved it because it was all about how the Soviet Union should come back together and try to destroy America once and for all. <laughs> and you got a passing grade, of course. Oh, I got summa cum laude. There was a... Uh, <laughs> There was a parade in my honor, you know. The, uh, I'm, I'm wondering when you, when you write this, I, I think I'd like you to, to read a, a bit from the, the book here. And, and I know there are various sections, and I found one that I think I didn't have to uh, do any sort of removal of words that are appropriate for American broadcast here. Uh, if you happen to come across one, uh, perhaps you, you could. And if you could set up the scene here, um, here, it's the beginning of a chapter four in the first paragraph. Just this first paragraph? Oh, no, and, and right to there. Okay. Uh, this is the story of Misha Weinberg, as I've said, and this takes place in 1992-93. And uh, Misha's father, who is the 1,238th richest man in Russia, one of these oligarchs with very ill-gotten gains, has decided to send Misha to America to become a proper American, and also at the age of 18 to be circumcised, because his father is a very uh, fervently believing Jew. So... Um, this is right after graduation from uh, Accidental College. This is Misha speaking. When I graduated from Accidental College with all the honors they could bestow on a fat Russian Jew, I decided that like many young people, I should move to Manhattan. 
American education aside, I was still a Soviet citizen at heart, afflicted with a kind of Stalinist gigantomania, so that when I looked at the topography of Manhattan, I naturally settled my gaze on the twin towers of the World Trade Center, those emblematic, honeycombed, 110-story giants that glowed white gold in the afternoon sun. They looked to me like the promise of socialist realism fulfilled, boyhood science fiction extended into near infinity. You could say I was in love with them. As soon as I found out that I couldn't rent an apartment in the actual World Trade Center, I decided to settle for an entire floor in a nearby turn-of-the-century skyscraper. My loft had a startling view of Miss Liberty greening the harbor on one side and the World Trade Center obliterating the rest of the skyline on another. I spent my evenings hopping from one end of my lily pad to the other as the sun fell on top of the statue. The twin towers became a fascinating checkerboard of lit and unlit windows, looking after several puffs of marijuana like a Mondrian painting come to life. <laughs> to complement my sleek Art Deco apartment, I got an internship at a nearby art foundation run out of a certain munificent bank. The whole thing was set up through the career office at Accidental College, which specialized in finding socially uplifting and highly unpaid internships for young gentlemen and ladies. And so every morning around 10, my morning gown bedecked with glistening medals from the Accidental College Department of Multicultural Studies, my academic major, I would roll over three blocks to the bank's filigreed skyscraper and perform my filing duties for a few hours. My colleagues regarded me as something of an oddity, but nothing compared to the young man who dressed up as a hamster during lunch and wept violently in the bathroom for exactly one hour and 15 minutes. A fellow alumnus of Accidental College, needless to say. Whenever the wisdom of having a sleepy Russian gargantua clattering around the already tight quarters came up, I merely had to say something like Malevich or Tarkovsky, letting the reflected sheen of my countryman's accomplishment glisten off my multicultural studies major. Eventually, the hamster got fired. <laughs> Gary Steingard reading a bit from Absurdistan. And the, and the book takes us uh, uh, to Europe, to Absurdistan, to, to a place in the world where, I mean, as, as you've been listening to the show today, I've been struck by sort of how polite and easygoing and, you know, how full of the pleasures of life we are here in Marin County. Uh, <laughs> Absurdistan is a little rougher. Absurdistan is a little rougher. I did a lot of research in uh, countries like Azerbaijan and Georgia. I was frequently threatened. People always wanted to kidnap me. There was this one guy every morning, he'd say, Gary, please let me kidnap you. There's really nothing more I would like. You know, we'll get Random House to pay for your ransom. It'll... I said, have you seen my latest sales figures? I, I don't think we're going to get that much. Uh, so very nice people. Um, at one point I was mugged in the middle of Georgia in the streets of Tbilisi, the capital of Georgia, and this guy came up to me and said, out of the blue, said, hey, you look like a really big Jew. And I said, yeah, I'm a pretty big Jew, thanks. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, you know, the Jewish people have a long history in our land. Uh, you will be my brother. My mother will be your mother. There will always be water in our well to drink. And I said, that's so sweet. And then he took out a giant knife and said, our mother is sick in the hospital. Give me all your money. And that's after I went back to the hotel and took 9, 10 Ativans to calm down. I thought to myself, you know, this is sort of what happened in the Soviet Union. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, we thought all these things were going to happen. Democracy, free markets, people expected a big hug from the world. Uh, but instead, the knife came out, and people lost everything they had. So I kind of thought that that little absurdist scenario would, would uh, be spread out over 333 very long pages that would form this book. <laughs> you, uh, you went to Baku which is a sort of an amazing place in itself, uh, you know, a, a, a classic long-time center of oil, a, a mixing of cultures. What is it, uh, a center of Orientalism at, at one point? Uh, 
today, what is the life in Baku if you were to walk down the street? Would you, would you find organic cheeses in the market? <laughs> Not unless you make your own. Uh, uh, no, Baku is a very interesting town. It's a real oil boom town. It used to be very beautiful. Still is in some parts because the Rothschilds came there in the early 20th century, if I'm not mistaken, and built these beautiful mansions. Uh, but it's kind of, a lot of it is falling apart, and a lot of it is getting a lot of Benetton boutiques. So it's this kind of, here you have Fendi and here you have starvation. It's that kind of thing. It's run by a horrific dictator. The father was the original dictator. Before he died, he bequeathed the whole country to his son. There's a lot of uh, portraits of him handing the country over to his son. Yeah, hey, you, you, want, you want this country for your 18th birthday? Uh, here you go. Um, the Bush administration, of course, loves these guys. Uh, the younger dictator was just at the White House. Uh, Cheney was just in Kazakhstan, one of the most corrupt, venal uh, dictatorships and authoritarian dictatorships ever. And he said, I love the political system here. You you've really have something very admirable, you know? A heck of a job, Brownie. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of American interest there, and there's a lot of uh, Halliburton, ExxonMobil. They have a lot of presence there. And uh, well, you have you have your characters. Uh, some of the characters sing songs of, of pleasure to Halliburton and, and one of the major law firms that's been involved in the right. oil business. <laughs> there was well, there was a lot of wooing. Uh, there was all these prostitutes at the main Hyatt. And uh, Halliburton is, I guess, their biggest... This is from your research. Yeah, this is from the research. <laughs> you know, Not just in the book. Well, the thing is, this, this book is, is, is fiction, ostensibly. It's really nonfiction. I mean, I'm sort of like James Fry in reverse, you know. <laughs> and I'm just expecting Oprah to spank me publicly, which would help sales a lot. No, there's all these hookers running around saying, Galliburton, Galliburton. And one came up to me and said, Galliburton, very hopefully. And I said, I'm just a Russian writer. She said, ah, true Russian writer. <laughs> I want Galliburton. And, the, and then the songs, and the law firm, uh, Kellogg and, and Root, Kellogg, Brown, and Root? Kellogg, Brown, and Root is a subsidiary of Halliburton. That's uh -huh. the, they're the ones that are, uh, have been involved in every scandal under the sun. Currently, they're overbilling in Iraq. So they're, uh, they're a lot of fun. Yeah. And, and so when you were, were sitting down, and, and, and sometimes I've talked with humorists about, uh, about the idea of sort of making up, up jokes and how can you make up some of the, the things that are going on in the headlines? Uh, I mean, would you find sometimes as you were writing that, that the headlines would trump you? Well, it's very strange, and I don't want to seem like some kind of prophet or seer, but this was written before 9-11. I started writing this before 9-11, and the plot of it was pretty much in place. So what happened later with Halliburton, although it surprised me, but just by venturing out you can see into these countries, you can sort of predict what will happen. I mean, this was a train wreck waiting to happen. Uh, so I think, you know, V.S. Naipaul, for example, goes on these days and says, oh, fiction is finished, because events are happening so fast, it's really not up to the fiction writer to keep up with these things. We have to turn to nonfiction. I really disagree with that. I just think that fiction writers, we should all leave Brooklyn every once in a while <laughs> and venture out into the world and gain some kind of cultural proficiency. I mean, I'm lucky because I was born in the Soviet Union, so I speak Russian. But we should go out there, see what's going on, and transform it into fiction that can be very timely. Do you think that having come to, to this country from, from Russia is what gives you one of the, uh, this perspective to see the United States in, in some of its foolishness around the world? Well, that's the thing is that I always thought, for example, that uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union, Russia would become more and more like America. But in the end, America became more and more like Russia. You know? <laughs> uh, who would ever think that the government would be spying on its own citizens? That's something out of the Leonid Brezhnev playbook. It's, uh, it's, it's astonishing. Who, and Russia has an oil-based uh, corrupt elite. Now we have one, too. It's, it, so we're really following along. So that, that's what's so incredible. I, the country I left as a child, never, hoping never to come back, is now uh, slightly uh, is the role model. Yeah, it is, it is startling when you read the, the headlines. Oh, yeah, we've been, uh, we've been monitoring every phone call in the country. Uh, what? 
<laughs> well, that's the thing is, when I started writing this book, Absurdistan was very clearly a fictional country in my mind in a separate part of the world. But I think Absurdistan is no longer really a country. It's more like an idea or a way of life. And I think in some ways, even here in Marin County, we're all living in a kind of Absurdistan. Yeah. Uh, you, you end the book by, by saying, uh, oh, my uh, sweet, end uh, sweet endless Ruana, have faith in me. On these cruel, fragrant streets, we shall finish the difficult lives we were given. There's an optimistic uh, finishing line for you. <laughs> well, I, the story, the, a lot of the book is also a kind of a love song to the South Bronx, uh, which I find to be a fascinating part of the world. Um, so uh, he is, my main hero, Misha Weinberg, is in love with this uh, girl named Ruena Sales, this uh, Latina girl who lives uh, in the Bronx. And she's, his dream, my, Misha Weinberg's dream, is to get back to America. But because his father has killed an American businessman over a stake in a rat farm, he can't get back to the States. The Americans won't give him a visa. And meanwhile, Rowena Salas, this girl from the Bronx, is in love with Jerry Steinfarb, uh, who is a sort of my alter ego, a professor at Hunter College who sleeps with all of his students. <laughs> so, not too much of an alter ego. I mean, my girlfriend's in the audience, so I better... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, you, you call him Misha Weinberg, and, and I had read it as Misha Weinberg, which, which also seemed, you know, kind of a nice play, you know, a vain, egotistical town. A, I was hoping that Americans would get the vein, but Russians would know it's the vine. But he also, he also, he also, he also drinks a lot of vine. He does, he does, he does, he does. So you began this book before the attacks in New York. How much of it changed or evolved in, in that time? I tried not to change anything. It was very hard because you know, I was writing about Halliburton and, and uh, it's, it's a country in the middle of a civil war which, which uh, is partly uh, engineered by Halliburton in this book. So all this seems like it's plucked from the headlines, but these ideas were there before. And after 9-11, the only thing I decided to do is to end the book on September 10th, 2001. I didn't want this to be a 9-11 book. I think there are some very nice novels. Uh, Jay McInerney, for example, writes about 9-11. Uh, but for me, it's a little too soon. I was about 15, 20 blocks from it when it happened. My best friend escaped by the, she was one of the last people to run out of the North Tower. So to me, it feels still a little too close for comfort in terms of writing fiction about it. So I wanted this, and also I wanted this book not to be about America. I wanted it to be about what America does to the rest of the world, but not to be about America per se. So I decided that this book would be focused entirely on Absurdistan. What, uh, what guidance would you give to George Bush? You sit down, Laura says, George, I've read this wonderful book by this nice man. Um, he's got some ideas, and, and you know, there's a, it's satirical, uh, but you might like to talk with him. What would, what would you say to George? I'd say, George, less praying, more drinking. This is... <laughs> because once you stop getting guidance from above and start listening to your own drunken frat boy instincts, you're really going to have something. <laughs> Our foreign policy can only improve. <laughs> uh, the American embassy was situated in the shadows of the ExxonMobil skyscraper, a freshly built rectangle of salmon-hued glass with Art Deco bands of chrome meant to evoke permanence and easy history. The embassy itself was housed in an old pastel academy once used to educate the sons of local czarist nobility. In the wake of the attacks on American embassies in Africa, a moat of trenches and razor wire surrounded the American outpost in Absurdistan. The gathering crowds, however, were well-equipped with wire cutters and the like, and they charged the compound with bravado, as if the incoming helicopters had convinced them they were extras in a Hollywood historical drama. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
But but you also capture you know as as well the uh, the sort of the media frenzy, the 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 imaging, the the, the sort of the uh, way people imagine themselves being photographed by the press and the media too. Well, the big problem in this republic, which undergoes a terrible civil war over oil, uh, ostensibly over oil, is that the name of their country is mispronounced, is, is so hard to pronounce. It's called Absurdistan, but the real name is Absurdsvane. So they can't rhyme like they can with Rwanda or Somalia or Bosnia, so they're very upset about that, that their country is, nobody knows how to find this country on a map. And I think what's really interesting to me is that I think many Americans know about the Middle East. The Middle East has certainly been uh, up and has been in all the headlines. But this part of the world where Absurdistan takes place, nobody knows what it is or where it is. Uh, the Caspian Sea, this whole region. And it's too bad because it's one of the most fascinating parts of the world. And I think it's a part of the world where all these different interests collide. You, know, you have oil politics, you have resurgent Islamism. You have all these different things happening. And I think uh, to, if I think research departments and universities should focus on Absurdistan, even if I did make it up. Yeah. Well, and particularly Accidental College should, uh, should have an entire course devoted to it. <laughs> there should be an absurd major at Accidental. <laughs> the, um, the, the, the role of, uh, of, uh, of drugs and liquor is, is, is paramount in this, in this book. It's a way that people try to endure, get through the world you know, as, a, as a medium of exchange. I think one of the things that's been startling um, probably to, to many Americans is watching how Russia has developed a system of oligarchy based on oil billionaires, drug billionaires, Russian mafia, you know, this whole sort of underground that, that really suggests chaos in the, in, the, in the streets, chaos in the society. When I came back to Russia the first time in 1998, it was around then, and I hadn't been back since it was the Soviet Union, and this incredible anxiety overtook me the first time when I saw, we lived a somewhat middle-class existence. There was healthcare, education, all these things that you wouldn't take for granted. When I returned, the whole system had fallen apart. The roads had been destroyed, the public transport, everything, nothing worked. The stores were stocked, stocked with things like $8,000 shot glasses. But my friends could only earn two, $3,000 a year. So it was this incredible imbalance, and we became, in a way, Brazilianized. There was this tiny- Brazilianized? Yes, there was, there was a small, very wealthy elite, and then the rest, poverty and very little hope of advancement. And the worst thing to see is the collapse in cultural values. Russia used to be the country where people would pass around books, often illegal books in the Soviet Union. People, that was their soul. And after the collapse, reading has fallen by incredible, incredible rate. I think people are just too busy trying to survive to really read you know, nonsense like I write. So They, they want to get a plasma screen. Yeah, well, are you kidding? A plasma, more like a, a black and white three-inch screen. But. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, and that dis- uh, so I was reading the other day, uh, Putin wants uh, Russians to go out and reproduce. Yeah, nobody's having sex in Russia. It's, it's, it's so strange, you know. When I go there, I'm so surprised. People just sit in, in a bar and, you know, make eyes at each other. And I say, come on, let's, let's get it on. The, the rate has fallen from 150 million to 142 million uh, population in, I think, 10 years or something like that. It's an incredible decline. But wouldn't, wouldn't it be okay if there were fewer people? There would be more resources to go around? You wouldn't have to fight so much over the food? Well, it's, it's the world's biggest country. You need, at least, you need to stock it with at least 200 million people and 400 million elk just to get things started. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about Australia, you know, which is a huge, huge land without much in the, in the center of it. It's just kind of along the fringes. And I mean, in, you know, Russia could 
do that. They just have the big empty space in there where Chernobyl was. <laughs> yeah, we could become a fringe society. Yeah, fringe society. Yeah. Well, already most people live in the European part, Moscow, Petersburg, and uh, and some along the. Uh, and some people are now moving to where the oil is and the and the natural industry is. So the oligarchs are happy. Everyone's happy. <laughs> the uh, and but but some of the people who want to leave uh, that land want to come to this country to be Microsoft certified. Yes. <laughs> I think the dream of a lot of people is to emigrate, but it's so hard because the, the American consulate in Russia thinks uh, everyone's a bandit or a prostitute, so uh, they're very, you have to prove that you're not going to emigrate for good. So it's very hard. All my friends want to, of course, get out of there as quickly as possible and move to Marin County. Um, <laughs> if, if things worked out the way people wanted to, there would be a direct to Leningrad, Marin County flight. You know. <laughs> landing right here in Nicosia. Nicosia. So there was a time in the, uh, in the 80s, particularly, when, uh, and probably in 70s and 60s, where, where there were residents in the Russian consulate in San Francisco on Green Street in Pacific Heights. Here was the Russian consulate in the midst of all these mansions of Pacific Heights. Many of the windows that faced the bay which is like covered up, the shades were always drawn, so people could never look out and see the view. And the people who worked in the consulate on their off time were forbidden to cross the Golden Gate Bridge to come into Marin County. <laughs> That's why, why do you think that is? <laughs> why do you think that was, I should say? That is so funny. I think if they saw Marin County, socialism would fail very quickly, or, 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 or be brought back again, <laughs> one of the two. <laughs> when, when you were writing, uh, this book. Do you read aloud to your girlfriend or somebody else about sections? Do you do, you do readings before uh, it goes to to print to see where people laugh or, or how it sounds? I, I work entirely in bed. I never get out of bed. Much. True? Yeah, it's very true. You and Mark Twain and Proust? Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good comparison. Uh, my spine is like a question mark at this point. <laughs> I'm, I can't ambulate for more than three minutes without having to sit down. Uh, the price you pay for art. Um, <laughs> I write in bed, but I play out the scenes, especially the dialogue between the different characters. I do that in the shower, um, naked, of course, sometimes wearing a robe in the shower. Uh, and I think that's the best time is to just hear my voice, hear these things uh, along the steam. And, the, and I also, uh, like most Russians, I beat myself with a birch tree when I'm, when I'm in the banya, which improves circulation and causes terrible welts. But, that's but, but it gets... But it the scenes develop magnificently in the brain. It really gets things flowing. I mean, Turgenev couldn't have been wrong. It's, it really works. Yeah, like, like this one. You buy me a Coca-Cola, you have lucky lady back home, I better. I wear thong, thong, I wear thong. Another rallying cry from the Hyatt uh, hookers. <laughs> so the Hyatts and the hookers, it's a... It's synonymous. Synonymous? In my mind, yeah. In your mind? In your mind? <laughs> Would, uh, were you, you, must, you were approached at various times. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, the funniest thing I remember, I was checking in, not at a Hyatt, at a pretty cheap hotel, and I said, uh, you know, I have a reservation. Uh, and she said, oh, yes, yes, that'll be $100, and uh, there's a hooker waiting for you up there. And I said, oh, thank you so much, but, you know, tonight I'm tired, please, no hooker. And she said, then it's $200. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, but I'm bum. Right. <laughs> thank you. I said, wait a minute. Now, so it's twice as much without the hooker? And she said, yes, I have to find the hooker a place to sleep now. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's like Swedish democracy or something. <laughs> and, and, and what town was this in? Uh, Sheki, I think, or Shaka, or one of these little towns outside of Baku. Yeah. And 
and other than being uh, held up at knife point and having you know wanting to be kidnapped and so forth, I mean, were there, did you ever otherwise feel at, at risk as you traveled around? Uh, everywhere I go, people want to kill me. I think. Uh, <laughs> Northern California may be the only exception, which is why I want to build a ranch here, the Gary Lives Ranch. Um, one of the funniest things I was uh, in a republic that shall remain unnamed. Okay, Georgia, and. <laughs> Some deputy, deputy minister of privatization met me and he said, oh, you're the best. He said, I want you to help us. We have this scheme to steal $600 million from some California charities. And he went on to draw me a diagram of the scheme. It was unbelievable. Blue jeans would become pharmaceuticals, would become offshore accounts in Cyprus and Nicosia, uh, would become antelope, elks, whatever. You know, it went on and on and on. And I said, look, you know, I'm just a writer. How can I help you? And he said, you're Jewish, so you must be very greedy and clever. <laughs> So you're going to help us. And I said, but I'm really, I'm only a writer. And he said, who, people publish your books? I said, yeah, yeah. He said, we'll publish them. I said, no, it's already Random House published them. He said, we'll publish them so people will read them. <laughs> Which is great marketing ploy. It, it is a great marketing ploy. I mean, to, every, every book uh, will be forced on you, and, uh, and, and there'll be uh, criminals who will sit down and make sure that you're actually reading it. Well, the president of uh, Turkmenistan, the so-called Turkmenbashi, the father of the Turkmen, has written his memoirs. I can't remember what the Ruhakala, I think they're called. And each citizen must read them three times in his lifetime. And, uh, and uh, Turkmenbashi spoke to Allah one of these days, and Allah said that if they read it three times, they will go to heaven. So now it's a national requirement. You can't get into heaven with all its virgins without three times reading the Ruhakala. It sells more better than my book, I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> the book... The book is uh, eminently uh, uh, quotable from, and, and, and uh, anyway, uh, you'll just have to quote from it yourself. It's called Absurdistan by Gary Steingart, S-H-T-E-Y-N-G-A-R-T, and it's published, coincidentally, by Random House. There you <laughs> nice. You got, you got into like 32 plugs for the Random House. I book. know. <laughs> brilliant. Brilliant. I get a commission for... Uh... <laughs> you get a commission for every book sold. <laughs> Absurdistan. Gary Steingart, thank you very much again for being here. Thanks for coming out to Marin County. <laughs> this is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.